Dead Horse, Alaska is essentially a camp for a huge oil patch at the end of a long road. As a matter of fact, the road is as far north as you can drive in North America. It's located about 250 miles or 400 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. So it's up there. And at first, that name, Dead Horse, sounds as if there's some history behind it, like an origin story. You know, like those epic stories told of life in the north. It's easy to imagine perhaps an explorer who maybe rode a horse all the way to the Arctic Ocean and the horse couldn't take it any longer and died on the icy shores of the Arctic. And there the explorer died along with the horse because he lost his transportation. That's a great story. But in reality, Dead Horse is an almost an arbitrary name. It really is an arbitrary name because there's some indications that it comes from a, a trucking company that built the airport runway. The trucking company was called Dead Horse Haulers. But Dead Horse Haulers doesn't have an origin story either. The fact is, Dead Horse Alaska is nothing more than an oil patch camp at the end of a long road at the Arctic Ocean. So why all the fuss? Why has it become a destination for motorcyclists? Well, not to mention loads of other tourists and RVs and cars and bicycles and every other way you can imagine traveling. Well, I think there's a few reasons. First, it's at the end of the road, so to speak. And who cares why? <laughs> it's, it's exciting to go to the end of the road to see what's there, isn't it? I mean, that's an exciting thing to do. You don't see that very often. It's also the beginning or the end, depending on which way you like to travel, north or south, for the Pan American Highway, which runs between Dead Horse, Alaska and Ushuaia, Argentina. By the way, many people that I talk to say that it's better to go north to south because you can have a celebration in Argentina, but in Dead Horse, yeah, not so much. So that's pretty cool too. And then on top of all this, there's the challenge of it. This is not your normal road. The road that takes you from just outside of Fairbanks up to Dead Horse, Alaska is called the Dalton Highway. It's commonly referred to as the Hall Road for obvious reasons. It goes to a camp. And in between that, those two places, you have to go over a mountain range called the Brooks Range. That pushes the road up to about 4,800 feet almost 1,500 meters into the sky. So you've got elevation change that brings a lot more snow, a lot rougher conditions. So you can sort of understand why it's a motorcycle destination, or, or really, I guess I should be saying, a route. Because like most adventures in life, the destination is just a sort of a plan, maybe a point on a map. And when it comes to Dead Horse, Alaska, it's a turnaround point, a place to grab a night's sleep, fill your gas tank, Maybe if you're really adventurous, go for a quick, and I mean very quick, swim in the Arctic Ocean just to say you've done it. So it's a worthy destination, not so much to arrive and enjoy, but a route to experience. The getting there is all the fun. And today, Jeff Davidson is going to tell us what it was like for him to ride a test motorcycle from Suzuki all the way to Dead Horse, Alaska. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Bill Bragoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Smart. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. 
And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. So my name is Jeff Davison. I am a retired school teacher and I live in the Niagara region in Ontario. Jeff, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks. Really glad to be here. A retired school teacher. So what do you do when you retire as a school teacher? Um, I still have dreams where I have forgotten to go out on yard duty and the kids <laughs> are like, has somebody died out there? I don't know. It's been three months and I haven't gone out. <laughs> so, I love that. So that you're is, haunted by it, really. Oh, yeah. I love that because I used to have that. I was in tourism before and I would wake up with nightmares of the exact same thing as what you're doing, only just different situation. Yeah. I would be sitting in the driver's seat and look up in the rear view and realize there was a bunch of people in a van that were supposed to go on a trip and there's no guide <laughs> and, and there's no equipment ready or anything. And yeah. I've got to sort of, you know, wing it. And, and that's what, that would be my thing. It's a, it's a horrible dream. It is. I know. And I, I mean, I've been retired going on four years and I still have it occasionally. <laughs> That's funny. Well, so, it, Jeff, you've made me feel much better because I always thought that was only me. And I thought there must be something messed up in my brain somewhere from way back. But I there realized, are at least well, two at least of us that need therapy, I guess. Yeah, I like yeah. that. <laughs> well, so I retired school teacher, but you're also a motorcyclist. So how do you become a motorcyclist from a teacher? Um, I had been on a bike as... I think maybe a 12 year old, there was a, there was a guy that kept a 175 Kawasaki on our farm. And he had told me that, you know, you can ride it whenever you want. Um, I think I rode it about three times and it broke down at the back of the farm and I had to push it up to the barn. And um, yeah, I was kind of like nuts to this. <laughs> uh, and I didn't do anything, didn't even think about motorcycles until, well, what was I, 45, I guess. And uh, went and found this, um, cruiser that I really liked. And it was, you know, I was picking something that I was confident I could pick up if I dropped it. Um, wanted to make sure I could manage it. And, uh, you know, uh, I actually, I took the course, the motorcycle course first, cause I wanted to make sure I don't want to buy a bike and then find out I suck at this. <laughs> so, so I took the course and I loved it and, uh, went and bought a bike the next week. So, but why, why buy a bike? I mean, at, at 45, what was it that caught your eye that thought, I want to ride a motorcycle? That's a good question. And my mother would really have preferred that I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember her when I was 12, you know, she's looking out the farmhouse window with hands on both cheeks, thinking that her son's going to die. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess... Uh, I've always taken myself too seriously, worked too hard, and 
you know, call it a midlife crisis if you want. Um, but I just felt like it's time to do something different. And this seemed like the right thing. But can you remember a time where it, where it actually became sort of a reality for you where, or at least the thought did, where you're sitting there, what was it, a program or did you see something? Did you see somebody ride by? Are you sitting in a cafe and a bike pulls in? Was there anything like that that sort of sparked something in you? I thought, I'm going to check this out. Honestly, I think it was very much not that. It, w- it was very much kind of the, that, I guess, midlife crisis where, you know, I've been too serious. I, I work too many long hours. And I said to my wife, I should buy a motorcycle. And she said, that's a good idea. So that's what we did. Wow. <laughs> she said that's a good idea. Why, why did you? Yeah, want, she did. Why did yeah, you think it was a I, good idea? Um, she was more fun than I was for sure. And uh, like I said, I, I worked way too many hours and I think she sort of imagined that this would be a fun thing to do together, which we did a little bit in the beginning. Mm. Yeah. So w- when you, you said you, you were very, you took yourself very seriously before this was there, was there a different Jeff before you started taking yourself too seriously? Before I started taking myself too yeah, seriously? Like, so so um, I'm assuming this is your teacher role, right? I mean, and that's a serious thing. Of course, there's a lot of responsibility yeah, there. But Yeah, but was there I a- mean, I was, I was always a super hard worker, even as a student and a perfectionist. And um, I think in elementary school, I do remember that I was in trouble a lot, but... Um, Somewhere along about high school, I kind of got the idea that, oh, you know what? It's better to actually just be a really good student and work hard. And so I did that. And uh, I don't regret it, but um, I probably missed out on some fun. And I didn't literally get an ulcer, but I could have. <laughs> mm. So then you go buy a bike, you get a tattoo, you take off the mufflers, and you cruise around. <laughs> Well, you know what? It was kind of, some of the draw was sort of that, you know, that badass um, mystique that comes with a biker. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bike first bike was a cruiser. And I, you know, I bought leather jacket and chaps at the bike show and, and uh, that kind of thing. So, you know, I kind of tried on that um, attitude maybe for, mm-hmm. for a little while, but that wasn't me really either. Um so my next bike was an adventure touring style, and that was uh, where I've been riding ever since. Yeah, you know that's interesting because the thing is with the the bike. I mean, yes, I know we we all know about there's the the badass look that you refer right. to there, and there is that attitude. But there's also something even with that look. There's something about even for that is it seems adventurous. It does. It seems like you you know you're yeah. the type of person you're doing something a little bit different. Whether you're riding an adventure bike or whether you're riding a cruiser or doesn't matter. You're doing right. something a little bit different. You're sort of stepping out there. And yeah, there is a risk to it and maybe that's part of it. I don't know. I haven't thought that that far through, but I mean, you you do appear a little different. You become like a bit of a personality. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I uh, <laughs> my daughter was in university at the time. And uh, so she had just met this boy and uh, they had started dating a little bit. And um, I don't know how this came about, but um, his friends had found my Facebook profile, you know, and I had up some pictures of me on the bike. And yeah, I had on a couple of fake tattoos. I was actually dressing up for Halloween for school that year. And they saw these pictures and and they went to him and they said, uh, oh, you might not want to date her. You should see her father. (laughs) (laughs) 
the, the, the happy ending is that they are married and they have a lovely, I have a lovely granddaughter now. Um, and <laughs> well, see, <laughs> he's you, a great you guy. You can't always judge a book by its cover. That's right. <laughs> so and what then, was it about the bike though, in particular for this? I mean, cause you could have jumped in a car and, and done a road trip. Uh, what is it about the bike that sort of really caught you? Um, well, it's kind of that, you know, that what's been said before that like when you're riding in a car, it's like watching a movie. And when you're on the bike, it's like you're in it. Um, you know, the, the smells, the sounds the even just noticing that I just rode through a very cold patch of air that you wouldn't notice in a car, that kind of thing. Um, I, I, I tend to wild camp whenever I can. Um, so, and that makes planning easier because you just you don't have to make reservations in advance for places to stay um it's easy to uh always find a spot to park the bike wherever you are um when my daughter was uh, turned 16 uh she said that what she wanted for her birthday was for me to ride the bike to new york city with her on the back and she said, we don't even have to get off the bike. I'll just ride on the back with my camera and we'll take pictures of everything. And then we can ride home. Mm. And that's what we did. And it was, I have to say, that's a great way to travel in New York City. I mean, you could, you know, you could uh, weave your way between taxis and, and parking, at least at that time, uh, parking for motorcycles was free. Um, you just, you know, you could get around gridlock a whole lot easier. It was great. Mm. And it does seem to open up different adventures, isn't it? Like even like that, I doubt very much your daughter would be that excited about, let's take the Toyota Camry <laughs> and, and drive around and I'll take photos from the window. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. You know, there's a, yeah. there's a certain thing. It, it, you ended up getting a, a pretty good gig here with uh, riding your motorcycle. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So like I said, I had ridden the, the cruiser for mm, a couple of years, I guess. and and uh, then I um, wanted to do some more adventurous kinds of things. I found that I had trouble getting the gear I wanted onto the little cruiser I had. Uh, so I thought, you know what? Uh, I don't. At the time, I looked at the V-Strom and it just seemed too big for me. And I thought, I, oh, I don't think I can handle this. So, so I actually bought a, um, it was brand new that year, the Honda NC700. Mm-hmm. Um, which was really more of a commuter than an adventure tourer, but it looked the part um, and it was smaller. So I thought, oh, I can, I can handle this. So I did that and uh, rode that one out, out East uh, to Newfoundland. Um, and anyway, um, yeah, the next year, maybe I had that bike two years, I think. And uh, I was getting ready to do a trip down into the Southwest, Utah, Colorado. I'd spent a long time planning this trip and about three weeks before it was time to go, I started hearing a noise in the rear end and I thought, sounds like bearings. Um, so I took it to the shop and it wasn't bearings. The wheel itself was somehow defective. And of course it was on back order. Uh-huh. Uh, so I thought, oh, what do I do? Do I cancel this trip? I, I would want to do that. So, so I did look around the showroom floor and I said, you know what? I'm going to leave the, the Honda here. And if you can fix it over the summer, great. In the meantime, I'm going to buy that V-Strom sitting over there. And when I get home from the trip, I'll decide which one I'm going to keep. Mm. Um, so I did that. And uh, yeah, by the time I got home, the uh, it was a 2006 uh, V-Strom 650. 
and I loved it. Um, and uh, so I let the let the Honda go. Now you're going to have to be careful with that dealer because you go in again, they're going to tell you the same thing. Geez, we've got a repair to do. It's going to take you a while. Why don't you buy another bike while you're here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this one worked out well because yeah. I've, been, I've been riding V-Strums ever since now, actually. So in, in that process, uh, well, early on, actually, I had, uh, when I first started riding, I um, was at the Toronto Motorcycle Show and met Glenn Roberts at his uh, both booth for Motorcycle Mojo magazine. Uh, bought a, a subscription and uh, was reading some of their travel stories and thought to myself, hmm, I just did a big trip down, you know, the West Coast and uh, I bet I could write a story. Wouldn't that be cool to get that printed? Um, so I inquired and he said, yeah, send it in. And uh, he printed it and uh, that was pretty exciting. So pretty much every summer since then I have written at least an article or two for them. Um, I've published a couple of other things, but mostly it's been Motorcycle Mojo. And uh, anyway, about this time last year, Glenn called me from Mojo, floating this idea of doing a long-term test ride of the new V-Strom 650. And I said, I've been dreaming of Alaska for a long time, and maybe this is the year to do it. You know, it's a brand new bike. It's going to be reliable, all of that sort of thing. And um, he thought that was a great idea. Suzuki agreed. And so I uh, rode their 2022 V-Strom for the summer up through northern parts of the prairies up into Northwest Territories, Yukon, uh, and Alaska. This is the type of gig that I think a lot of people dream of getting. It's not only just having the new bike because you have a bike as well, but this right. is a purpose. This is, you're off on like a sort of an official adventure where you've got a purpose and you're there to document some things and come back with, I don't know, some sort of story or conclusion, I guess, of what you've experienced. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, I consider myself much more a traveler than a motorcyclist, uh, but I love motorcycle travel as a way to travel. So a lot of my travel I do have in mind. I'm going to write about this for the magazine, you know, so I take lots of pictures and, and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this was, this was kind of a new level. I, I'm, I, I pinched myself for a long time. Um, like you say, this is not, I, it's not something that I went looking for. It just kind of fell in my lap, this great opportunity. And yeah, I'm just so grateful that it, that it happened. Now, Motorcycle Mojo Magazine, for those who don't know, I think they, they've been around for a long time now. I think getting close to it. I think they celebrated their 20th mm, a year or two ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a long time. It's a Canadian magazine. They cover what? When they started, they, they had in mind to be like their travel stories, at least would be strictly Canadian. But uh, after 20 years, as you might imagine, there aren't that many roads in Canada. <laughs> so they began to, you know, publish, you know, things into the States and, uh, for several years, they had an issue that was all about world travel. Just, just when I had started, they actually did a series with Paddy Tyson, who rode, I can't remember if he started in, in Prudhoe Bay or not, but he rode all down through South America all the way to the southern, to Ushuaia. So they're covering adventure things as well as street riding, sort of the, the full gamut. Yeah, yeah, they really do. They, um, of course, they have bike reviews every every month and uh, several different columns on different topics. Yes, yeah, so it's kind of a well-rounded magazine, I think. 
So your your trip to go to your aim for Prudhoe Bay. Yes. Okay. So you're aiming for Prudhoe Bay. That's that's your your sort of destination. You're going to go up there. You're going to turn around. You're going to ride back. You spend the whole summer. You're riding the the brand new Suzuki V-Strom. Uh, which one is that? The 650. Yes. Yes. So you're, on the, you're on the 650 V-Strom. What do you do to prepare for this trip? Um, I told you already that I tend to be uh, I work too hard and I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So I'm also a bit of an over planner. Uh, so I spent a long time in the winter, <laughs> uh, doing a lot of the planning, you know, I, partly because I, I want to make sure that I actually don't ride past something that's there that I didn't know about. Um, I did that one time on my, on that first ride. I didn't even know I was riding right past Beartooth Pass. Um, and I missed it. So, um, I kind of hate that thought. So I try to do a fair bit of research in advance I'm trying to think if I did much modifying to my kit in advance for, oh, for Alaska, I did a couple of things. Um, I got a couple of uh, bear-proof canisters for food. And I also tried out this little um, electric fence kit for backpackers that when I was in country that I was kind of concerned would be overrun with grizzlies, I could use this uh, little electric fence kit that uh, would power off of a, um, like a jump starting block, you know, that you can carry. Because mm-hmm. I had thought, it had occurred to me that uh, you get far north, you don't hang your food in a tree because they're only two or three feet high. <laughs> okay. So that was my main difference in preparing this time was, was thinking about being in a different kind of climate than usual. Now, the bike, as far as prep for the bike, are you running on the stock tires? And and what are they? I think they're Bridgestones, aren't they? Yeah. When I picked it up, it had street tires on it, just the stock. I rode those as far as Whitehorse. And they were still, you know, they're probably half gone by then. Anyway, I knew I was going to be doing some more gravel because I wanted to go up and do Top of the World Highway. So I I got uh, some Midas EO9s, which are more chunky tires. Rode those up through uh, into uh, Yukon and then on, on up the Dalton and down through Anchorage and back to Whitehorse. Where, that's where I got Midas EO7 uh, tires put on for the ride home. Right. And now you did mention your camping. You even took your electric fence thing there to, to try out. Right. <laughs> did you end up camping the whole time? Um. Pretty much. Um, I, I'm real happy to wild camp. And I, most of the time, I just use uh, a bivy sack. I don't even bother with a tent. Um, and I'll just lay it out on the ground. And um, most nights that works great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great way to watch the stars. I mean, you, you've got to do something with your face for the mosquitoes, though. Yeah, I actually got some like mosquito netting and sewed it into the opening of the, of the bivy sack. Oh, so I can kind of lay that over my face mm-hmm. yeah, and that works pretty well. That's a good idea. Cause that's, that's the only thing you got to take care of because as you head up into those areas and uh, well, I mean, just about your whole trip, you would have been dealing with mosquitoes in the summertime, but yeah, you, so you, you ended up um, going to Prudhoe Bay, as you said, you found something different there. And I remember when you first uh, started to communicate with me, you were saying about how you had heard on the show, you heard on Raw, I guess, where Shirley yes. and Brian had taught, talked about their experience. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, the uh, what I was expecting when I got to Prudhoe Bay was, you know, this 
as I had heard, and as as Brian and Shirley talked about, you know, this this one pretty Spartan hotel uh, that was way overpriced and the food was terrible and all of that. That's kind of what I expected. Um, and and it, apparently it was that way until about, I'm going to say 2016, I think, is when the Arctic Oil Field Hotel, I won't say they started, but because the, they had had some of those old modular buildings that, that you see in photos that just kind of looked like an old portable or stacked trailers or something. Mm, build, type of building they bring in on a trailer and they take that off and set it down, you mean? Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. So in 2016, uh, they dismantled that whole thing and built this brand new, it's like they can accommodate something like 450 people. And it's uh, just an amazing, I was amazed. It was, you know, so I paid $155 US, uh, got a, it's a, it's a room for just one person, but it was modern. It was clean. I could do my laundry for free in the laundromat. Um, they had like this whole floor that was devoted to recreation. So there was a TV and games room, sauna, gym. Um, they had, you know, all this under one roof, which kind of makes sense to me when you're, you know, in the far, far North and it's dark all day and, um, you know, the winters are brutal. And so you don't want to go out. Mm -hmm. These are, so this uh, hotel is actually there to service the workers. Um, what I discovered when I got to Prudhoe Bay, what I learned was that um, there's actually like six hotels now in town. Uh, five of them are actually there to service the the oil field workers. They have something like 15,000 workers that fly in for shifts that last two or three weeks. Wow. And they've got to have some place to stay. Yeah. Um, so, so this Arctic oil field hotel where we stayed is one of those. Um, and you can't just ride up and assume that there will be accommodations because if all of the oil fields are, you know, in high production, the, 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 it's, oh, I was going to say the town of dead horse, it's more a camp is just inundated with workers and there's no vacancy. So is this hotel a hotel that's owned, by, and do you know, that's owned by the oil field and sort of turned into like to do their accommodations and then they have some extra rooms there to, I guess, generate some extra money? Or is it a tourism type thing that they rent out to the oil field? Uh, that part I'm not entirely clear on. I think it's kind of like a subcontracting sort of thing. Mm. Um, I don't think it's directly owned by the oil company, which, um, as I understand it, uh, BP has pretty much the monopoly on the Prudhoe Bay oil fields at this point. So they had like a cafeteria style uh, that was all you could eat. And that was included in the price of the room. So $155 got us all of that. So the price is cheaper now. Yeah. And the accommodations are better and it includes your food. It did. Wow. Yeah, that, I know. That's, and of course, you you mentioned about when it's when it's dark all the time, but that's not the case when you were there, not for the summertime. No, I deliberately got up at three a.m. just to see the midnight sun because mm. it was something I'd never seen before, and it was it was amazing. Because you had pretty much twenty four hour light at that time. Of yeah, year. at that point we did. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, because we were far enough beyond the Arctic Circle that that uh, we, it wasn't just like one day. <laughs> right. Well, let's back up a little bit. So, getting there, what was that like? What was the ride like? I almost didn't go. 
um, I, you know, for for years I had heard of the Dalton and, you know, it's one of America's most dangerous roads. And, you know, you watch YouTube videos of these giant potholes and mud that can swallow your bike and, you know, the, the truckers that are out to kill you. Uh, so I was pretty nervous about doing that that bit of the ride. And in fact, I had not even really planned it in my original over planning. But uh, a couple of things sort of influenced me. I was kind of like, you know, the, I got to Fairbanks and I had been thinking about, you know, I kept thinking about the Dalton and thinking, should I try it? Shouldn't I? You know, I'm, I'm riding this bike that I don't even own. If I wreck it, that's not going to be good. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> That's true. Uh, no, no, this is kind of, this is funny because you'd said about how much planning you did. So even though you yeah. did all that planning over planning, as you described it, yeah. you're still getting to that point where you have not made up your mind whether you're going to tackle this road or not. Yeah, that's true. That's wow. true. And you know, um, like I said, I do do a lot of what most people would call over planning, but then I do it mostly just, as I said, so that I don't possibly miss something really cool that I rode right past. I'm not, I don't feel tied to that itinerary. You know, if I, if I discover something else, great, I'll go see that too. So it sounds like it's more searching the area out than it is planning that itinerary saying, I'm going here and I'll be there by this time. You're more checking out the area to, to make sure you have a good lay of the land, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I do kind of work it out as an itinerary where I'll be at such and such a place on a certain date sort of thing. But on this particular trip, the only parameter that or date that I had to make was that my partner was going to be flying into Anchorage in a couple of weeks and we were going to spend a week exploring together and then she'd fly back home. So I had to be in Anchorage by a certain date, mm -hmm. but other than that, I was completely flexible. So yeah, so there I was in Fairbanks. That was going to work. <laughs> I, uh, I actually called her and, you know, as I, was leaning more and more towards going up the Dalton. I called her and I said, you know, I'm calling because I just need someone to talk some sense into me. I really want to go up the Dalton, but here's why I think I shouldn't. And uh, she said, what's the Dalton? And <laughs> I said, well, there's this, there's this dangerous road that goes up to the Arctic Ocean. And she said, oh, cool, you should do it. <laughs> so, so it wasn't the sense that I was looking for, but it was the sense I needed, actually. Right. You were probably more thinking that she's going to say, well, you might want to think twice about this. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 She's, she's not a, um, certainly not a, a, a committed rider like I am. Mm -hmm. She'll go short distances, but uh, yeah. So I, but yeah, she was right, right behind me to do it. And uh, I met a couple of other riders, um, I don't know how many people would know that up in Alaska, there actually is a town called North Pole and there is actually a place called Santa Claus House. That's, you know, kind of a Christmas year round tourist attraction kind of thing. I stopped there so I could have letters mailed to my grandchildren from Santa. Yeah. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, just north of Delta Junction on the trans, well, it's not the, Al the Alaskan Highway anymore there. It's actually called the Richardson Highway. Uh, but anyway, I stopped there and, you know, as often is the case, I've ended up in conversation with a couple of other people on motorcycles. Uh, and, uh, they actually had just flown their, their Hondas. They were riding CBX 500s, uh, from Ireland to New York, and they were traveling all over North America. Uh, 
and they were getting ready to go up the Dalton. And uh, when 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 Jackie, uh, so their names were Davide and Jackie, and when Jackie told me that she'd only been riding for three years, I felt like, oh, well, now I have to go up the Dalton. <laughs> if she's going to do it, I need to do it. <laughs> because that's your fear. That's what's holding you back is just you're worried about the conditions of the road. Can you handle it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I've I've done a little bit of off-roading and taken a couple of courses and that kind of thing and certainly have gotten better over the years at it. I, I try to practice and that sort of thing. But still, like, I'd not ever been on the Dalton and didn't know for sure what it would be like in person. And uh, on top of that, I there was a section of the Alaska Highway that I had just ridden uh, between um, Haynes Junction and Beaver Creek in the Yukon. Mm-hmm. It was horrible. The The permafrost had done such a number on that. It was about 300 kilometers of, you know, everything from sand to gravel to chip seal, pothole, frost heaves where, you know, I'd be riding along and the bike would just drop out from under me and then it would buck up, you know, under me again. Um, a couple of times I thought I was going over the handlebars. So um, to be fair, I was probably going too fast is the main problem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so that kind of had me worried, hmm, you know, if this is what the Alaska Highway is like, what is the Dalton going to be like, you know? But I I did decide, you know what, I'll go as far as the Arctic Circle, but no bravado. If it's too hard or the weather goes ugly, I won't be too proud to turn back. So that's how I got started on it. I also, you know, had seen the videos and, and read things about, you know, how the the calcium chloride that they put on the road it keeps the dust down great. Uh, but if it rains, now it's really, really slippery um, and, you know, covers your bud and bike in this kind of concrete mix that isn't very good for your for your radiator, brake pads, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So so for me, I felt kind of kind of like weather is really the wild card here for me. Um, and, uh, so I, again, I thought, you know what, if the weather turns and it's just too much for me, I won't be too proud to turn back kind of thing. So, so, so that's what I did. I set out, um, up the Dalton and, uh, at Yukon river camp, which is the last place for gas, uh, North. So that's about 130 kilometers, I think, North of, uh, Fairbanks. Uh, there is a place to stop there for gas. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, they had, uh, you know, a, a one of those large round fuel tanks was what you fueled up in front of. And of course, it was covered with stickers and that sort of thing. And, and I bumped into, met a guy there named Frank, who was from the Netherlands, and he was riding a BMW Cross Challenge uh, 650. Um, and we simply, he was waiting for gas and, and uh, so was I, and we just agreed to take each other's photos uh, and ended up riding together, uh, for the rest of the Dalton, um, mm. which was great. I mean, it was, it was, uh, you know, just that little bit of added security that there's someone else there. If you slide off the road and down a, into a ravine or something, someone else knows you're down there. Um, so we did that, uh, we rode together and got as far as the Arctic circle, um, which, you know that that part of the road was pretty challenging, even on its own. Um, there was a, a quite a few twisty sections coming up to Yukon Camp, Yukon River Camp, 
and then some pretty serious hills uh, north of there. Um, so, so when you we, say serious hills, describe that. We're going to take just a quick break while I tell you about a few things. When we come back, we've got more. Stay with us. Heidi and David Winters are the, the driving force, the inventors behind the Atlas Throttle Lock. But the name that I really want you to remember is the Atlas Throttle Lock, because this thing's going to change the way you ride. This is the absolute best, bar none, hands down, throttle lock that I've ever tried. And when you look at it, you're going to recognize it right off. This is a finely machined piece of equipment that is dead easy to install on your bike. It clamps under your handlebar. I think it's just a one set screw. It's got a unique little jaw that locks in. I mean, every part of this thing is so, it's like a Swiss watch. It's really beautiful. But the way it works is really what gets me. And, and this is what I'm always after with things. It's got two buttons on it. One you press for engage. The other one you press for disengage. They have positive feedback. When you press these buttons, you don't need to look at them. You don't need to glimpse down to check what you're doing. You know by the feel. That's important as a rider. This throttle lock gives your, your hand and your wrist a break. It lessens fatigue while you ride. It will literally change the way you ride. And the nice thing about it is, I mentioned it, come, it It installs easy. It also comes off easy, so you can swap it from one bike to another. This is a beautiful piece of equipment. And one of the other nice things about it is you can adjust the throttle without having to disengage. Look at the Atlas Throttle Lock, and you'll understand what I mean. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Atlasthrottlelock.com. You know, if you listen to our rider skills segments, you'll hear us talk all the time about peg weighting. Peg weighting is really important because it's how you control your bike. Standing your pegs is really important because it's a way to control your bike. And all this has everything to do with what you're standing on. Think about it. When you stand up, you're standing on your foot pegs. Quality foot pegs are like any other quality tool that you use. And when you're using a tool so often that's so important for riding, you need to buy quality. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. They've been building parts for motorcycles since 1976, and all those years of experience are poured directly into the adventure motorcycle foot pegs they make. IMSproducts.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. If you can't see it, then it's dangerous. On the road, I mean. The better your field of vision, the farther you can see down the road, then the longer you have to react. There's no better way to illuminate the road than with quality LED lights. Cyclops Adventure Sports is owned and operated by riders just like you and I, and they specialize in all kinds of lighting for motorcycles. LED replacement headlights, auxiliary lights, CAN bus plug-and-play systems for a bunch of bikes, very special yet affordable lighting made for us riders. They have the Evolution Safety Turn Signal Inserts, which I have on my bike, and I love these things. They turn your front turn signals into these super bright white driving lights, which double, of course, as your, your turn signals as well. And then the back, your signals turn into super bright tail lights, and then stunningly bright brake lights. I mean, these things are so bright, they make my factory LED light look dim. And, and it was super bright when I bought the bike. Everyone commented on it, but these are even brighter than that. So the combination of the three is just... It's arresting for the vehicle behind. 
you can see it illuminate signs in, in your mirror, like way, way down the road. It's really, really good. And that is safety because, of course, Cyclops' slogan is see and be seen. And you certainly do see and you certainly are seen with this stuff. Anyway, their website is cyclopsadventuresports.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Cyclopsadventuresports.com. So, so when you say serious hills, describe that. Uh, so there's a there's a number of hills that some of the truckers in the past have named things like Roller Coaster Hill, which might give you a clue. Um, beaver Slide is another one. Uh, so so there are these long, long, like maybe two kilometer descent that you know might be ten or twelve percent grade gravel. Um, I didn't find them terribly difficult, but you know, um, where, where I think the, the truckers have got their reputation for trying to kill you, uh, for the most part, they're actually very friendly and they, they would help you if they could, um, where they get that reputation is on these long, long, uh, grades. They have to get a pretty good run out of it if they're going to even make it up. So they've really got to gun it. And if you happen to be in their way, you know, or, or coming along facing the other way, it's likely that they'll kick up a stone or something and, and that might not be good. Mm. Um, because if, so that's they, really, if they that, stop on the hill, I guess the problem is just getting enough traction to get going again. Yeah. Yeah. They just, they, I don't know what they would do, but they just have to back down, but that's going to be a long way and pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, so they they really have to give it a gunning going heading toward that uh, toward that slope and uh, just got to go for it. What sort of speeds? They say that you know when you're encountering oncoming traffic, they recommend that you slow down to like thirty kilometers an hour so that you're not kicking up stones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that the truckers can do that. I think they I think they're they have to go pretty good. Mm. Yeah, and the thing is with the truckers, as we all know, they throw up a lot of stones. Yeah, and dust, you know, I mean, that's partly why, the, why they put down the calcium chloride, because a trucker blows past you, and you are in whiteout conditions, really. Mm-hmm. You just can't see anything. Extremely, extremely dangerous, because you have no idea yeah. if there's something behind them. There could be a vehicle. Oh, that's right. You know, 100 feet behind them sort of thing, and you can't see it. So what do you do with that? Are, are you pulling over? I mean, are you slowing down and getting off the road? And I guess the real scary thing with this sort of thing is if you had a problem. Yeah, that's true. You know, I feel like uh, Frank and I, I feel like we got really, really lucky because it had rained in the couple of days leading up to our trip up the Dalton, uh, but not enough to make it super slippery. So yeah, there was a little dust, but it wasn't bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, maybe once in the whole trip, did we experience kind of like that where you just can't see anything? Um, so yeah, so I can't really comment too much on, you know, somebody else could have a whole different story, but what the Dalton was like for them, you know, I mean, like I say, the weather seems to really be the thing that makes it change so much. Uh, sure. If, if it was raining, you would deal with the mud and it would be a different yeah. uh, picture. And, and of course, if it was super dry, then you've got the dust issue to deal with. 
Absolutely. Both of them, I, I think, have their, yeah. their own things that you'd be fearful of. But certainly with the mud, um, there's potential for you having problem riding a motorcycle. And if you find yourself on the road and having issues with the mud, that's where you don't want to be in the way of one of these trucks that's taking a run. And they're probably de- running it even harder at that point because they're worried about the traction. Yeah, that's that true hill. too. Yeah, so is, are, yeah. are, are there spaces, is, is there space on the side of the road? Like how would you pull off the road in most mm-hmm. of these spots? That's a tough one because it is narrow and there are most of the time it's, you know, there's, if there's a shoulder, it's soft. And then, you know, so there are places where the bank down from the road is, you know, 10 or 15 feet mm-hmm. uh, down to the actual lay of the land. Uh, so yeah, you don't, you don't want to go off. And then you're into soft ground as you go yeah. off the road. So the, the yeah. idea of riding down that slope and then buzzing along and getting back up. No, nope. that's not going <laughs> to no, happen. No, absolutely not. So yeah, you're, you're committed to the road surface for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you found a pretty good experience because, and, and you recognize that right off the bat, you got lucky with the weather. Could have been we really completely did. different. What about the other people that you talked to that were on the CBX 500s? Mm-hmm. What about them? Did they, did they get there and back all right? Yeah. So, uh, like I said, Frank and I pretty much stuck together all the way up the Dalton. When we got to Coldfoot, which is where you would stop at the end of your first day, because it's pretty much exactly halfway up the Dalton. There is a truck stop there and a hotel and a restaurant. Uh, and that's it. I think the population of Coldfoot is eight. Um, uh, Anyway, we got there and, uh, you know, we were, there, there was a bit of a grassy spot to set up our tents, which we were doing. And we went into the restaurant and there was Jackie and Davide. <laughs> I didn't even know they, you know, I, I knew they were going to do the Dalton at some point, but uh, didn't know I was going to see them again. So we essentially did the, did the route together. They actually were, were earlier risers than, than Frank and I were. So there were, the, there were the two of them and one other guy named Jonathan who was from Switzerland, I think. The three of them were up at like 4 a.m. And it's, it's daylight already, right? So it didn't matter. But So they left early, early. Uh, Frank and I didn't get going quite that early. But when we got to Dead Horse, of course, uh, we met up with them again. And uh, yeah, they, they had done great. Uh, Jackie had, you know, like I said, she was the third year of riding. Yeah, they had done really well. There was only really one section where I found the surface was challenging, and that was there was about 25 kilometers of construction. And it was wet and muddy and slippery. And if it wasn't for the loose gravel, there wouldn't have been any traction at all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, we just took our time, no sudden movements, you know, up on the pegs, you know, all the things you you do. and we got through it and uh the construction i gather is just seasonal construction just maintaining the road yeah i mean the permafrost is just it's a whole different kind of thing to try to build on top of and they're still you know working on the technology as to how to make that work well you know if they pave it the blackness of the of the um pavement warms up the permafrost underneath and that's not good and so then you end up with these frost heaves and huge potholes. And, uh, you know, there were sections where right down the middle of the road, there would be, you know, this, this gaping rut, I guess is the only word I can think of, because the permafrost had shifted the whole road and, and opened up this long 
hole that, you know, you, it would be knee deep. So you go into that with a tire and you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Now, for those who don't know, don't understand what permafrost is, can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so in the north, of course, uh, the permafrost is the layer of soil underfoot that never thaws. And that's a good thing if you can keep it that way. And, and actually, it, it's it's what contributes to all the uh, muskeg and, you know, all the tiny little ponds and things that you see in the north because the water can't drain away because the permafrost is there and there's no drainage. The permafrost being this this top frozen section, it's also very mucky. Like this is all basically muskeg underneath yes. the permafrost. And yes. you're mentioning about the issues with the the road heating up. We also have problems with global warming. That's changing things. Yes. And just the natural heaving of things, even the slight defrosting and freezing, because there's a, there's a small portion of the surface that that certainly defrosts uh, or, or does somewhat depending yeah. on, on the year. Yeah. And that all makes the road building, not to mention the buildings, et cetera, very difficult to manage because even the buildings, it's not like, you know, anywhere or many other places where you can dig a foundation and you have something solid because once you've broken through the permafrost, if you get through it, there's kind of nothing there but bog. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, when I was in Dawson City, in particular, you can see some of the old buildings that are still there from the Klondike days that, you know, they're they're tipping at crazy angles because of the permafrost. They're mm-hmm. just kind of slowly sinking. Um, so I know in Dawson City, they uh, are constantly driving... Uh, wedges under the corners of the foundations of their houses to keep them level. To keep them, right, yeah, yeah. It is a, it's a bizarre thing for, for you know. It really you, is. If you don't live there. What, what was the total distance from, uh, say, Fairbanks up to Prudhoe Bay? It is just shy of 800 kilometers. And how much of that 800 kilometers did you think, well, was at least potentially bad, even though it may not have been for you? I think almost any part of it can be. Uh, like even the first section just north of uh, Fairbanks, which technically isn't the Dalton yet, is very twisty, uh, some loose gravel. The trucks have to come through there. Um, I think there's different kinds of challenges in different places. Uh, in some places, it's the grades, the, the corners, the loose gravel. Uh, other places, it's that it's, you know, like in this section where, where there was construction, it was fairly low-lying. It was very wet. Um, and yeah, uh, we actually found it was coming, coming back down the Dalton was, uh, fun because then we knew what to expect. Like in that construction section, we knew, okay, we've been through it once. We know how long it is, what to expect, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, and we could roll along with that, but, uh, on our way back down, as we got to cold foot, the forecast was changing and they were calling for rain and we started to get some rain and it did get. You know, those sections that we had ridden that weren't particularly challenging heading north. Yeah, I kind of felt like we got our introduction to the Dalton by degrees, <laughs> which was good because by then we had, you know, had a lot of experience. I had built up a bit of uh, self-confidence on the road um, and made it back without ever going down. So that was great. Is that sort of psychological? You know, you're talking about you, you went up and then on the way back, you're feeling a little bit better or did you actually learn things that you needed to know? Um, I would say a little of both. Uh, I, 
I do find that, you know, the psychological part can be a challenge for me. And so, yeah, to have already seen it and know that, okay, you got through this once, you can do it again kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, certainly puts your mind at ease some. Um, I know that probably my biggest nemesis is target fixation. And so, so I'm always, you know, kind of conscious of that and making sure that I'm keeping my eyes up and not staring at that mud in front of me and that kind of thing. Mm. Okay. So as far as the rider, as far as you as a rider, what challenges did you have to deal with as, as far as riding challenges aside from your target fixation and how did you overcome them? So I'm thinking of here, you know, you're going to tell people so that they get to learn it before they go. Right. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that I thought about as I was considering should I or shouldn't I do it was, you know what, someday you're going to be dead and you're going to wish that you had done this. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, and I really am glad that I did it. Hopefully that's possible that when you're dead, you can do yeah. something. I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so for me, that's the big thing, at least is that, you know, like I said, I had been kind of like, should I, shouldn't I? I'm so glad that I did. Um, I mean, so many, it's just such a different part of the world. Everything is just so different up there. Uh, everything from like accommodations to, you know, just wide open landscapes where there's not a, another human being in sight. Um, you know, you see on this trip, I saw, I saw caribou, grizzlies, moose, wolves, um, you know, just all of those things reasonably close. You While know, you're riding along or when you've been stopped? A little bit of both. When I was in British Columbia, I almost hit a grizzly that came charging out of the alders beside me. Mm. <laughs> and that one kind of flustered me a little bit, I have to say. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, but then there was another place where this wasn't on the Dalton. It was on uh, the top of the World Highway. But uh, I had uh, decided to wild camp just real close to the... Um, to Poker Creek, the uh, the border between Canada and the U.S. there. Uh, so I had wild camp there, and I woke up to this huge herd of caribou all around me. Like, I, I couldn't touch them, but darn close. And they were just, like, slowly parting around me and the motorcycle and continuing on down the, the side of the hill. And, I mean, it was like being in something from National Geographic. It was just fantastic. Wow. Spectacular. Did you get photos of that? I did. And I also got some video on my phone. Nice. <laughs> it's not good video, but I've got it. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. that's quite the experience for sure. Yeah. I was going to say with the, the grizzlies, they're furry on the outside, but they're really hard in the center. So you do not want to hit them. I mean, that, that and that's part of, and I, I'm tongue in cheek, obviously there, but that is part <laughs> of the fear, isn't it though, of, of riding in areas like this is wildlife on the road. And particularly if you have to deal with the darkness as you get more south. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was one thing that I found amazing about riding in the north is that, you know, if I felt like I needed to get someplace by, to camp by that night, well, it never got dark. There's <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> so there was no pressure. That's right. 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 That's right. So, so uh, but as far as riding challenges, what, what, what sort of other challenges? Um, I was, a, I don't know if that's what you call this a challenge or not. I was a little bit, like I said, because I hadn't actually made plans ahead of time to do the Dalton whole hog, I only had with me like one little liter can of extra fuel. 
Um, would I make it? Would I not make it? You know, um, I'm happy to say that I did make it with like on on the on the uh, range uh, indicator on the bike. And when I pulled up to the pumps in Dead Horse, it said that I could go another three kilometers. <laughs> That is getting down to the last <laughs> down to the wire. I did have that extra liter with me, but as you know, it kind of depends how hard you're riding, how much fuel you're going to use, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there is so an optimal I, speed and, and ride yeah, style. Unless right. you've experimented with it ahead of time, you know, yeah. you may not be able to get that, uh, the maximum yeah, right. out of it. I mean, so, and that's really stressful when you get down to that, when you're watching that fuel gauge and you know, you're, you're getting to the, the point where it's going to be sucking fumes. That That's very yeah, stressful for riding. Absolutely. Like I said, I, I had two th- kind of backups. One was that I did have that one uh, bottle of, of liter of fuel and worst case, I think Frank had some with him too. Mm. Um, How far uh, would a liter get you? I don't know that I broke it down. It's a 20 liter tank and the range I did get, um, what was it showing? 391 kilometers on the, on the, um, trip meter when I got to dead horse. So 20 divided by what would that work out to? You're using five liters per hundred kilometers. Okay. Yeah, right. Which makes sense yeah. for, for the 650. Yeah. It'd be somewhere around there. Of course, yes. depending oh, on how you ride. That's true. Yeah. yeah, of course. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And that could yeah. change drastically, as you as yeah. you mentioned. You know, you, you ride that hard, you're going to push that up to seven, seven and a half liters. Yeah. Uh, yeah or absolutely. if you found it very slippery and not even riding it hard, you could end up yes, pu- that's pushing true. it. That's true that as far. well. That's true as well. So, so I, yeah, I was taking a bit of a chance. Certainly, being the over planner, I would have carried more fuel ahead of time if I had been going to do the whole thing. Uh, but like I said, I kind of like was like, okay, I'll go as far as the Arctic Circle. Okay, mm-hmm. I'll go as far as Coldfoot, you know, and ended up doing it. So that was great. Now, as far as the bike goes itself, you're riding, as you said, a brand new bike. This, this is yep. a bike supplied to you. So you are sort of, I've assumed, limited on what you can do to this. But did you do any prep to the bike to get it ready for this? And what sort of things did you find with it? Because you mentioned yourself there, you've heard, and, and we've heard it on this show, the talk about the the calcium chloride and how it hardens like concrete on the bike. I mean, Clinton Smout has mentioned that many times about yes, how right. bad it is and the different things that he does to protect the bikes when he rides in that area. What did you find? Um, again, because I wasn't planning to do it ahead of time, I had not done a lot of um, probably wise prep that I should have done. And like I said, kind of got lucky with weather, really. I mean, it did take a pretty good scrubbing when we got back to Fairbanks to get it to get it clean again. Uh, but um, yeah, no, I hadn't done a lot of a lot of mods. I'd, like you say, it was it was not my bike, so I couldn't do major things. Um, yeah, it was pretty stock, actually. So it just sort of took the beating and and you got lucky. And this is the interesting thing about these kind of trips is that, as you mentioned already, too, this this could have been a totally different trip. And a person that goes a week after you could have a completely different experience. Absolutely. We got back to Fairbanks actually, and uh, somebody heard a weather report that uh, uh, one of the places that we had to ride through was we have to ride ride through the Brooks Range and up through Attigan Pass. And uh, the weather uh, had turned and it was snowing on Attigan Pass. Ooh, wow. So we missed it. (laughs) Right. And you were running knobby tires though for that. that Yes, that's true. Yeah. Right. So you were sort of set up that way. But as far as the calcium chloride and the mud and things like that, I guess you didn't run into anything that was really, really bad, but you could have. What would you have done then? 
That's an excellent question. Um, I mean, one question, one of my solutions was not to get uh, too macho about it and be willing to turn around. Mm, um, I did also have, of course, um, Frank was there with me. If he got in trouble, I could help him, vice versa kind of thing. Um, but other than that, yeah, I mean, there's no cell service. Uh, there's, you know, hundreds of kilometers where there's nothing, no civilization of any kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, you, in your experience, how many, how uh, many times or how often are you passing vehicles going the other way or coming with you? You know what? I was surprised actually how many motorcyclists were on the Dalton. Well, they're a strange breed. I know yeah. that for sure. <laughs> and, and you know what? Every kind. I mean, there was, of course, you expect to see some of the, the big uh, GSs and that sort of thing. But, but uh, you know, this other couple that were on Hondas and I was on a, on a V-Strom and I saw a few V-Stroms and uh, my buddy Frank was on a, on a cross challenge. Um, so there were, I was surprised actually, there were lots of motorcyclists, um, some trucks, not, not overwhelming. Um, I, you know, there wasn't a time really too much of a time when I felt like we could be here for days and nobody would see us. Uh, it wasn't like that really. Mm -hmm. Um, and I actually was talking with a guy from Fairbanks at one point who said, you know, and I think he's right. He said, you know, it's, it's become reasonably common now to go up the Dalton. Uh, I mean, there was a time he's, he said this, he said, you know, it was a time when you'd be like, oh my God, you're doing what? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, of course there was a time when the Dalton was not nearly in the, the condition it is now either. It was a lot worse, mm -hmm. a lot harder to ride too. Uh, I mean, there are some sections of it that are paved. There's about an 80 kilometer section uh, leading into Dead Horse that is perfect pavement, absolutely mm. smooth. Mm. Um, and as someone explained to me that they're actually experimenting with a new kind of way of doing the road that that they can, you know, pave sections like that. Um I mean, the paved sections are much harder to maintain if the surface doesn't stay still. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the gravel roads, they can just come along with a grader and smooth it out again, but uh, you can't do that with pavement. Would you but, say but pavement, this was, is it asphalt or is it concrete? Uh, this was asphalt. Huh. Um, and you know, it, and it looked black? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so I, I, I don't know what they were doing under it. I've, I've read various things about how they use huge sheets of styrofoam and things under the road. Mm, I was wondering that, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know the science involved with that, really. Why did you go? What was the reason that you wanted to get there? To Dead Horse. To Crudo Bay? Yeah. Um, it's gotten a bit of a reputation, hasn't it, for, you know, being the beginning of the Pan-American Highway. And, um, of course, the other end is at the tip of South America. Um, so, you know, I had known about it a little bit, um, and other people have done it and you see videos about it and that sort of thing. And I mean, it's the farthest North you can, you can travel. I think it's farther North, isn't it? Than, than Tuk Tuk Tuk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so just, just to experience, I mean, it was just so different there, you know, um, we get, we got to the ocean and, uh, 
in Prudhoe Bay, you can't just drive up to the ocean because it's an oil field. Uh, so you have to sign up for this uh, um, bus tour. It's like a, a minivan and they take you down to the ocean and uh, you can go in and um, Frank and I went into our ankles and that was plenty. Um, yeah. A couple of people stripped right down and dove in. And I mean, I couldn't even feel my feet. <laughs> so, so we kind of cheered them on, you know, yeah, go for it, do it, you know, <laughs> That's right. but I mean, it was like, you know, the, the air temperature was like four degrees and um, to, to see the sun up all night was something that I'd always kind of wanted to see. And, um, it was, it was just kind of cool to experience that, you know, I mean, when you live in a certain latitude, most of your life, you get kind of a sense of what time of day it is just by the light, you know, um, up there, I didn't have any idea, no idea at all. I mean, it would be 10 PM and I'd be, th and I wouldn't know it. And I would think, Hmm, I'm getting kind of hungry. It must be nearly dinner time. <laughs> With the experience that you had, because you mentioned that it really wasn't tough conditions, the weather was sort of favorable towards you. Do you feel like you got the experience? I mean, do you, is there any part of you that says, I want to go back and do it again to see what it's like the next time? Um, I would do it again for sure. Uh, it, it was just so, like I say, it was just like no other place I've ever explored. Um, and, uh, at this point, I, I can now say that I have been in every state, province, and territory in North America. Um, so I think I can speak with some authority on whether things are different or not. Um, and it's just like nowhere else I've been. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe parts of northern Newfoundland were kind of the same. Maybe parts of um, the north shore of uh, Quebec up the... Uh, the St. Lawrence River, kind of the same maybe. Uh, but yeah, nothing like this, nothing like this. So when you say you've been in every province and every state, is that all by motorcycle? Yes. Oh, that's, that's interesting. It's a good experience. So having said that though, that you, you said you would go back again, would you do something different? Because you know that you, you said right off the bat, you know, you got lucky with the weather, things worked out in your favor. Sure. Would you prep your bike? Would you prep yourself any different for the next trip? Just in case something happens that you know is a, a potential. I'd probably carry more fuel, uh, maybe more water. Although, I mean, there is lots of water around. And if you have a proper filter, uh, that, that can, that can work. And I did actually have one of those with me, like one of those straw filters, you know, mm -hmm. the life straw um, that you just put in. And yes, suck exactly. The water, right? Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't remember the name of it, but yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, probably there are things that I ought to do to prep for it that I didn't even know about. Um, and maybe I still don't, um, probably should talk to Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure he would, he would say, you know, all kinds of things about as, as far as the bike prep goes, because, um, yeah, you can, you can certainly get into trouble with that sort for of sure. thing. Any other tips before we wrap up here that you would pass on to someone else through your experience? Um, with the Dalton, uh, tips, let's see. Um, just, I think one of the things that, that actually, we, we actually saw a guy who, so my tip would be this, on the Dalton, take your time, don't be in a hurry, keep your eyes open because there are lots of potholes and loose gravel and all those kinds of things. 
uh, and they're not just bumps. They're, they could destroy your bike. We saw a guy that had, uh, we, we took two days to ride up and two days to ride back. We saw a guy who had ridden all the way to Prudhoe Bay from Coldfoot. It was, it must have been, you know, six or seven o'clock. And yes, it's still daylight, but he basically got there, looked around, turned around and headed back. Mm. And he didn't stay overnight. No. And, and I just think he was pushing himself too hard. I didn't actually get a look at uh, his bike enough to know for sure. But when we were coming back down the Dalton, we actually came across a V-Strom that had slid down off the road and had been abandoned there. The rider had obviously left. Somehow someone had picked them up and taken them. Was he injured? I don't know anything about that. But it just kind of made me think, you know, don't push yourself too hard. To me, that was crazy. I mean, he had the daylight to do it, but still, really? How many hours can you ride and 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 be at the top of your game, which you need mm-hmm. to be for that kind of a road surface, you know? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, Jeff, thank you very much. It was great talking to you and great getting an insight into what you experienced there on your trip up. And I'm going to have to look for your articles in Motorcycle Mojo magazine. There will be several coming out because it's uh, this trip that we're talking about constitutes several articles coming up in the next few months. Oh, so that, that's yet to be published then? Yes. Oh, okay. So, you, yep, so if you want to know more, then check out Motorcycle Mojo. Yeah, for sure. Great. Thanks very much, Jeff. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure, Jim. I was speaking with Jeff Davidson from his home in Ontario, Canada. Now, these articles that he's written that are going to be published, uh, they'll be coming out soon in Motorcycle Mojo magazine. Watch for that. We've also got a bunch of photos, really great photos of Jeff's adventures in the show notes, including those ones where he woke up with the caribou surrounding his camp. Just incredible sight. Anyway, all in the show notes for this episode at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you. Thank you very much for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. Now, if you like what you're hearing and you're interested in in supporting the show, the show is built on a, a model of advertising and listener support, which means that we need your support. So don't just sit back and think that everybody else is going to do it, because as I've said before here on the show... It's a very, very small percentage of people who actually support the show compared to the many, many, many thousands who listen to this show every week. I mean, if you can't, I totally understand. I know not everybody's able to do this, but I'm not talking a lot of money and you can just do a few dollars a month for it with our patron account. Uh, you can give a one-time donation. It, it, it doesn't matter, but anything $10 or more gets you Adventure Rider Radio stickers, which are quite nice. They're 3M high-quality stickers and it's a neat logo. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout-out on our Raw show. And, and of course, we would love the patron support. 
if you can do that. Anyway, just consider. I, I'd, I'd really appreciate it. Let's uh, let's get out there and ride our bikes if we can. I can't right now because it's just snow and ice for me right now. So I hope you can and enjoy it. Think of me sitting here in the snow and ice while you're out there enjoying it. Um, anyway, thank you very much once again. My name is Jim Martin and I will talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Graham Jarvis and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.